Father in heaven, we ask now that uh, the Spirit that is speaking to our hearts will speak as well from your word today, Lord, that uh, whatever our heart needs to hear, we will receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So we started a few weeks ago in working on crafting for ourselves a common language. Now, I'm not talking uh, specific as in Spanish or English or whatever, but, but rather any gathering of people, even of relative uniformity, needs to have some sort of agreed-upon ideas that enables that community to function uh, in harmony together. And the more diverse the community becomes, the more important this is. So we started talking about this a few weeks ago when Pastor Tim was here, and he talked to us about our mission that we've adopted as a church to live the gospel, meaning that we would in our lives live out the reality that we have put our faith in Jesus who lived and died for our sins and that we would live with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives in a way that would transform everything we did so that we would go out and live this gospel we profess. Then we talked about a vision that we've had here for, for this community for a long time that goes by the, the easy acronym GPS, meaning passion for God, passion for people, and a passion for service, that each of us would be people who lived that out in our lives. And we started to talk last week about values, and we approached it from the standpoint of, of the story of the Tower of Babel and how God in His wisdom knew that fallen humanity united was a unity to destruction. That when fallen humanity is united, it unites itself and ultimately goes to its own destruction instead of ultimately going towards God's purpose. And so he came at the Tower of Babel and literally confused languages to divide everyone up. It was a hard thing to do, but it was the only way to save us from ourselves. And since then, we've been divided. Because there's only one center around which humanity can unite safely, and that is around Jesus. So it was not until after Jesus had come, had lived, had died, had risen again, and was taken up into heaven, that then at that point God began to officially undo what he had done at Babel. On the day of Pentecost, they were all gathered. And God enabled them to speak in the languages of everyone around for the purpose of making the point that this new kingdom is a kingdom for everyone. We are working here on being the Forest Lake Church version of the kingdom of God in this time, in this place. And what God has made clear to us is that we are not uniform. God has called into this house people from every kindred, tribe, 
tongue, and nation. Well, not everyone, but lots of them. Just look at the choir. And you all managed to sing in harmony. But you agreed to some certain rules, didn't you? You agreed to work together, and, and you agreed to, to mostly do what Jeremy said. <laughs> and the result was, was this, this amazing reality of a people together. Shared values are the way we will be able to achieve this. And we began to talk about this last Sabbath, and, and I'm going to give you the list of them again, but we're keen today on the value of worship. But worship is a very deep value in this community. But another one is family. The reason we made the investment we made in the new children's wing is because our commitment to family, to children. I mean, that's where children come from, right? You're going to want to be here next Sabbath for sure. Because next Sabbath is Pastor Barbara's last official Sabbath here at the church. Imagine that. The first Sabbath in February will be the first time in 33 years there will be a worship service here where Pastor Barbara is not on the staff. That's crazy. But that's reality, and that's how things are, and that's how God ordains things as they transition. But you're going to want to be here next Sabbath because Pastor Barbara is going to help me as we talk about the value of family, and you're going to want to hear what she has to say. It's going to be important words. So make sure you're here. Also, another thing, and, and let's pretend I'm saying this quietly and Pastor Barbara doesn't know. You remember last Sabbath we passed out little envelopes that for, uh, for contributions to a fund. There you go. Good job. Thank you. There's the envelope. Um, if you didn't get one of those envelopes or you didn't hear about it, this is a, a fund that uh, is being put together in honor of her years of service that will, that will be able to fund certain special ministries within the children's ministry area. And, I just, and, and it happened this week that someone, a donor in our church, stepped up and said, you know what, I want to give a matching fund. And that matching fund is, is to $50,000. So the first 50000 we raise will be matched and doubled for that. So I want to pass that on to you as a challenge and encourage you to do that. So, all right. So worship, family, togetherness, service, and testimony. We're going to spend the next five weeks fleshing out each of these ideas. Today, we're king on worship, and I want to start today in Revelation chapter 14. In fact, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in Revelation because there's a lot of worship in Revelation. But Revelation chapter 14, I want to start with a passage that, that we as Adventists have, have believed that God has specially challenged us with in these days in which we exist as a community because I don't know if you didn't know this, but there haven't always been Seventh-day Adventists. Hope that's not news to you. But in this time, we have believed that this is an important passage that God has given us. We call it the three angels' messages. And it's our intention at this point that we're going to spend some more time on this again this fall. We did it several years ago, but, I, but we're going to come back to it. I think it's time to come back to it. But for today, Revelation 14, verse 6. I read this last Sabbath. 
Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And that was the piece we grabbed last week because we were talking about the reality of this community from every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, people. We don't have them all, but we would accept them all if they wanted to come. That's the rules here. They're all invited. But now I want to go to the next verse. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. We're not going to deal with that issue today. That's another huge part of this. But it's this next piece. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. One of the key elements of this message of the first angel is a mandate to worship God. Part of our message and part of our responsibility as a people is to be worshipers of the God who created all things. But what does that mean? Well, to try to get at that, I want to take you back to chapter 1 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So so understand here, John is saying, I'm one of you. I'm like you. You're like me. So if you want to put yourself in the story, you're John here. Was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Isn't that interesting? We, we did it. We did the sound of a shofar earlier, and uh, you weren't sure what to do with that. Well, if you were a Jew from another time, you'd know exactly what to do with that because the shofar called you to worship. See, we all have a worship culture. And isn't it interesting that God would tap into his worship culture. His voice to him sounded as a trumpet. You all might say he had a voice like an organ. (laughs) But what would it sound like to you? A voice behind me as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. So we did the the series on the seven churches a while ago, and we talked about those fascinating messages. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead." But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys 
of Hades and of death. All right, who are we talking about here? Who was the one that lived, that died, and now lives forevermore? It's Jesus. Talking about Jesus. So John sees a vision of Jesus. And what does he do when he sees the vision? Boom, right on the ground. Now, isn't that kind of strange? Isn't this John who walked with Jesus every day? Isn't this John who shared meals with Jesus? Isn't this John who at the Last Supper says, leaned himself back against Jesus and asked him a question? What's going on here? So there's a couple of realities about Jesus, and he comes to us in, in, in humanity sometimes in a way when we need him as that companion, and we are that companion, and he is a companion with us, and we're close, like Jesus and John. But sometimes we forget that when the glory of Jesus is revealed in its fullness, it is of such a surpassing nature that we fall to the ground. This is the reality of who Jesus is. And even those who know Jesus well ought to be and will be overwhelmed anytime he appears in his glory. This idea of the fear of the Lord has to do with the revelation of God in the fullness of his glory. If you have not had that experience in your life recently where you were overwhelmed by the glory of God, maybe you don't know Jesus as well as you feel like you do. So what about this whole aspect of worship? I'm going to presume that in heaven they're pretty good at worshiping. I'm just going to go with that. I'm going, to, I'm going to presume that in heaven they know how to worship. Wouldn't it be nice if somewhere in the Bible there was a snapshot of what worship in heaven looks like? Well, i got good news for you. Just go over a couple chapters. Revelation chapter 4, which I believe is a snapshot of what worship in heaven looks like all the time. So Revelation chapter 4, let me share this with you. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. It's quite a remarkable description, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. Based on recent events, which will go without name. I think many of you might be put off by this scene. You see, it's a bit of a crazy light show, right? Big old glowing green circle. Come on, man, in worship. 
lightning right in your eyes? Come on, that's not worship. Is it? And it sounds like it's way too loud. Right? Thunder? That's not quiet. Um, Voices? I hope they were in unison, right? We wouldn't want random. You see how culture plays into our experience? Let's go on. It gets worse. I'm sorry, but it gets worse. (laughs) Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had the face of a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And all of a sudden that children's story about the angel looking like a puppy doesn't seem so weird anymore, does it? No. I got to tell you, I'm kind of scared of those guys. If they were up here, I don't know. I don't know that I'd turn my back. And apparently the eyes thing was weird for John too because... Verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who was and is and is to come. Talk about repetition. They sing the same song over and over and over. And over. Okay, maybe it's not a 7-Eleven song. You, you know that, right? You know that little saying, that little pejorative phrase we use for songs we don't like? Seven words repeated 11 times. This is a 14 infinity song. 14 words repeated forever. Repetition. But wait, there's more. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. It's demonstrative. They don't just sit politely. We couldn't even do that. If you tried to bow down and cast your crown, you'd hit your head on the pew in front of you. We're not even set up for this kind of worship. We're set up for me to talk and you to listen. It's it's an irony, isn't it? You see, if I'd have just read through that chapter and not pointed out any of those things in it, we'd have gotten to the end of it and everyone would have said, Amen, that must be amazing. But we're conditioned sometimes to amen words that would actually disturb us and shock us if we experienced it. So I want to suggest, at least based on this passage, we might have to admit that the light show, loud voices, repetitive lyric, and physically active worshipers Maybe they're getting it right sometimes. You see, we're we're conditioned. We're all conditioned. 
And what I want to suggest is this. I mean, I'm not taking a side on anything. I'm just suggesting that not everything we're sure about is actually correct. It's called humility. Where I humble myself to be willing to admit that I'm not sure everything I know is true. Calls to worship, the shofar, very little meaning to us. We're not culturally conditioned for that. Years ago, people used to live close to churches. Everybody walked. You didn't need a big parking lot in those days. You know what they did, what the call to worship was in those days? They rang the bell. Oh, church bell, time for worship. Bells don't mean that to me. I'm not conditioned. If you're a first service attender, we're talking about cultures here. If you're a first service attender, a chord on the piano means, oh, time for worship. You stand up. If you come to second service, a chord on the guitar means, oh, time for worship. You stand up. If you come to third service, a chord on the organ, oh, time for worship. Stand up. It's all a G chord, right? Is the G chord only righteous on your favorite instrument? We're conditioned. Revelation goes on, chapter 5. Now we move out of this scene of what is, what is there all the time to a specific scene. It says, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. Now what we're going to see here in chapter 5 is this amazing, this, this ascending crescendo of praise. But I want you to see where it starts. This praise and worship in chapter 5 begins with need. It begins with the awareness of need. There's a scroll, and this scroll is key to the accomplishment of God's purpose. But there is no one in heaven, not even the great and powerful angels or these four living creatures, that is worthy to open this scroll. This is the crisis. Verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The hero arrives at the throne of God. This is Jesus. And the reason I say that this is a point in time is that this doesn't take place until after Jesus has lived, died, and risen again. Because that was the cost. That's what made him worthy to open the scroll. So this is a moment in time at the throne of God. Now it goes on, verse 8. 
Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Okay, I just want to pause there for a second. Sometimes you have to sing a new song. It's comfortable to sing the song you've always known. And I like singing the songs I've always known. But every now and then you need a new song. You know why? Because God keeps doing new things. And every time He does a new thing, somebody writes a new song. So it was time to sing a new song. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So this is the first beginning of this, uh, this ascending uh, praise that's taking place here, this worship, this, this ascending crescendo of worship. It starts with humanity. And we sing the song of redemption. We begin this song of redemption. But as we're singing this song, the angels, they get excited by this. In verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, and I should turn around and conduct you on this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So do you hear the crescendo? So first humanity is singing of redemption. And now the angels join in. Worthy is the Lamb. But that's not enough. Still not enough. Verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So now the crescendo has grown to include every living thing. You want to be a part of that? I want to sing that song. I want to be in that throng. Then the four living creatures said amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. And, and after something like that, how can you not just say amen and amen and amen and amen and on because of the thrill of worshiping? Now, I believe this passage exposes four things that are very important to worship. And I'm not saying this is a, a definitive description of worship, but I think it's, it's true to this passage and it's true to our reality. And here's those four things. Number one, worship requires us to recognize who God is. Okay, it starts there. It doesn't start here. It starts with the reality of who God is. Second, realizing His surpassing greatness. It is the greatness of God that elicits this worship from us. Third, Worship very often contains the recounting of His mighty works. You see how they do this. When, the, when humanity begins to sing, they tell the story of their redemption, the mighty work of Jesus. And then finally, a receiving of His grace and mercy. This is what makes it so precious. This is what makes worship so special. You have a card. I think uh, Julie had, had them passed down I have one here somewhere. There it is. 
You have a red card. Do you have your card? If you don't, they're at the end of the row and you can pass them down. We're going to do a card for each of the next five weeks. You come for five weeks, you'll have the whole deck. That'll be good. On each of these values, and each of these values you'll see has a, has a word, a statement, then three points that fleshes it out, and then a purpose. So I want to walk you through this. The first thing I want you to see is this. Worship, worship is both a private and community experience with God. Now having said that, let me make a sort of apology to you. You see, we as a leadership staff of the church have invested heavily in the corporate side of worship. And I'll tell you exactly, in the community experience side, I'll tell you exactly why we've done that. It's the only thing we can actually control, right? We can pretty much decide what we're going to do on Sabbath. So we've invested heavily, and we're not the first ones. This has been a truth here for a long time. This church has cared about worship and has invested heavily in the community worship experience. But here's the problem. There's only so much that can happen in the community experience if there isn't simultaneously a private worship experience in everyone's life. And here's the trap we fall into. If the community is not engaging in private worship, then what Sabbath morning becomes is our attempt to put on a good enough show to get you to decide to worship. And the irony of it is it doesn't matter which style because any one of them can be a show. And what's amusing about it is the big complaint you get from the people in different styles that prefer different styles, that's the big accusation. Ah, it's just a show. Well, I guess that depends on where you're coming from. Psalm chapter 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Private worship. Does God hear your voice every morning? See, that's, that's the challenge of this passage. The appropriate way for a believer to live is to wake in the morning and speak to God. And to listen to God through His Word. Pray to connect. This is the private experience that we can't control. We can't make you do it. But if you ever are a part of a community in a room full of people who have spent all week worshiping the Lord and then gather together in His house, that's not a group you have to convince to worship. That's not a group that you have to put on a good enough show for. 
That's a group that catches on and goes with what's happening. Verse 7 is what comes after this. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. When we are all worshipers in private, it will make our corporate worship experience even more powerful. So worship is both a private and a community experience. Now, I want to flesh out three points here. We won't spend a long time on it, but these are important. Number one, we live in response to God's calling. Okay, this idea of worship is a response to God's calling. And I take you to to Revelation again. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. This is the message to the Laodicean church. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay, you didn't one day say, I think I'll be a worshiper. No, Jesus came to your door and knocked. And if you became a worshiper, it's because you opened the door to him. He initiated this. There's another passage here. Second Peter, sorry, First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation. You see, it's initiated. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You've been chosen to be worshipers of God. He initiated this. Verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is who we are. So we live in a response to God's calling. Second point, we anticipate being challenged and changed by consistently encountering God. Worship does not leave you the way you were. Worship changes you. And if you have become so stuck in your notion of worship that it never changes you, It's not God you're worshiping. It's something else. It's become about you. Worship will change you. So I want to read you Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We did this in in another translation in our call to worship. See how we use those words, right? Call to worship. But I want to read it to you in the New American Standard because I feel like the New King James misses an important point in its translation. And here it is. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We worship by giving ourselves over wholly to God to reshape, which he does. Verse 2. Look at verse 2 here. And do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, this is, this is the challenged and changed reality of worship. We give ourselves over to the transforming of our minds and He changes us. There's another great verse on this. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what this is telling us is when we're looking at Jesus, it's as though we begin to look more and more like what we see. By beholding, we become changed. So we anticipate as a part of worship is that we'll be challenged and changed. But then one more point. We are compelled to share our lives generously. Part of the reality of worship is that we are compelled by who God is and by what He transforms us into to share our lives. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God... So again, back to that first point. This is in response to His calling. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. All right, I want to pause right there. That is the only chance we have to bring this disparate reality we call a congregation into any kind of functional unity. We have to have this kind of attitude to each other. Mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgiving, and love. And that goes for the multiculturalism in here, and it goes for the multigenerationalism in here. we got to long-suffer this and forgive it. Can you forgive this thing? Forever appearing in your church at the wrong hour? There's no way we can be united if we can't be long-suffering and humble. Verse 15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Okay, when we have that personal time, God will speak to us. And in that time, He will give us things to share. And that's what makes worship so rich. When we all bring something special. And, and I love the way, and I'm probably going too far. Paul probably didn't mean this, but, but let's do it anyway. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Can we hear all three? I mean, I don't know what Paul meant in his mind that somehow these were three different things, but hey, we got three different things. Maybe that works. 
psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. God compels us to share. Well, what's it for? The purpose, we desire to create a culture of committed worshipers. That's what we want this community to be. A culture of committed worshipers. Community worship and private worship. Committed to that purpose. This will give us a common language. But now let me give you a caveat there. We're still going to have different accents. Right? Is it okay to make fun of someone's accent? Used to be when I was a kid. That was fun. But that's because very few people had an accent back then. I was 20 years old before I figured out American was an accent. (laughs) It's culture. It's perspective. You got to go somewhere else before you realize you're strange too. Common language, different accents, but driven by love and appreciation. This is the only way we can ever engage the ascending crescendo of praise. Otherwise, we'll have to separate the three groups, and this one will have to praise over here, and this one will have to praise over here, and this one will have to praise over here. Now, mostly we're going to praise in our native tongue. But if we ever want to do the ascending crescendo, we've got to let the angels sing. We've got to let every creature on heaven and earth. I'm not sure what it was like when the bullfrogs joined in. I don't know how good that sounded. Four points about worship. Recognizing who God is. Realizing His surpassing greatness. Recounting His mighty works. And receiving His grace and mercy. That'd be a good Sabbath every time, wouldn't it? That would be a good Sabbath. One of the key ways we'll live the gospel is through worship. And we pray that our lives would glorify God's name. I'm going to ask Jeremy to come up here and join me. We're going, to, we're going to sing a song at the end, but here's the thing. Because it's so hard to agree on accompaniment, we're not going to have one. We sang it at first, it worked real well. We sang it at second, it worked real well. We'll see how you guys do. Can we glorify? Yes. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.